Good morning, everyone. It's wonderful to be with you and uh, to share in this wonderful time of praise and worship. It's been a time of rich praise and just we praise God for just um, songwriters who are able to put words together like that, that just um, resound with rich praise. And um, it's fitting that Alex has chosen these um, for us to worship because um, the pursuit I'd like to look, I'd like us to look at this morning from the text that was read for us is uh, the pursuit of godly boasting. Now, before going any further, I need to say something about that word boasting. Um, it's it's translated as praise uh, in other parts of the Bible where this word is used in the Hebrew, um, but um, most of the, um, the um, major translations, the RSV, the ESV, the King James, New King James, NASB, ESV, all of them use the word boast in this instance in, in the first three verses. I think it's only the NIV which uses the word glory or glorify. Um, it says, I will glory in the Lord if you have an NIV. So that's the reason why I've titled this, The Pursuit of Godly Boasting. Now, um, that may seem like a strange pursuit to study because uh, most of the time we understand the word uh, boast um, in a negative manner. Uh, The word boast has negative connotations when we speak about it in our vocabulary. It's used to indicate almost always um, excessively prideful speech about oneself. it, it, it talks about, uh, it re- usually refers to someone who's talking themselves up or someone who's, um, you know, really um, wanting to be self-centered in what they're saying. They're the hero of their own story. Um, boasting requires elevating yourself in the eyes of others with the objective and intention that they would look at you more highly, perhaps, Or that they would think of you as extra special or that they would consider you to be a bit above uh, themselves, a bit remarkable. It's putting yourself on a pedestal is what boasting is. And the the objective obviously is to get people to admire you and oh wow, look at, mm, gosh, that's that's pretty special. So self-aggrandizement is usually the motivation behind boasting to inflate your sense of worth in the estimation of others. But um, sometimes we can boast um, in things other than ourselves. We can boast in our family, our children, our favorite sports team. Um, We can boast in our culture, our country. And I'm not saying that boasting in these things is necessarily wrong, it's fine to speak highly of your family or children or your culture or your favorite footy team. But what I'm trying to make the point is about the nature of boasting. It always involves elevating someone or something or putting someone or something on a pedestal because that someone or something is special. Now, I'll give you an example. Let me indulge in a bit of boasting myself. Um, some of you will know uh, my sister, Sarah. 
and uh, she's in India, and you may know that she's a lawyer. And she's not a lawyer in the criminal sense of the word, she's a corporate lawyer. She works for an airline. That airline in India uh, is an airline that leases uh, the most aircraft from Airbus in France. They lease about 200 aircraft from Airbus, which means that uh, her company is one of the largest leasers or lessors of aircraft in the world. And being a lawyer, she and her team have perhaps a unique position in all the world that no one does the kind of work that they do in terms of the legalities of leasing this many aircraft. And so hopefully you'll understand that now the reason why I mention that is not to boast in my sister, but what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to show that she's special in what she does. And therefore, hopefully you'll understand that the, with the pursuit of godly boasting, we understand what we are trying to do with God. We're trying to put him on a pedestal in the eyes of people so that they will look on him and understand that he is special. We are trying to raise him up in the estimation and worth of the world so they will see that he is unique and worthy of praise. Now this is not to say that we are doing something that God does not deserve or that we are trying to raise him above what he deserves. No, we can't raise him high enough. But the pursuit of godly boasting, and we've done some of that this morning, is to raise up God because He truly deserves it. We make much of Him. We elevate Him. We raise Him high. We are, we are proud to speak of Him in these terms. So it's about putting God on a pedestal. It's not about us are putting the focus on us as Psalm 115 says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to yourself, give glory. And so that's the intent, that's the heart behind godly boasting. It says, I, I, he must increase and I must decrease. That's the whole point of us being here this morning is to let the Lord increase, not in our li- not just in our lives, but just in, in, in our community, in our family, in our workplaces, to let Him be the one who is exalted and lifted high. And so, godly boasting is about putting the spotlight on God with the intention of getting others to acknowledge His worth, His value, His dignity, His honor. And so that they see him as special and unique. And so with that, with that definition, perhaps, of godly boasting, I'd like us to consider the context of the passage that was read for us in Psalm 34. Now, some of you may have the subtitle in your Bibles for Psalm 34, which says, A Psalm of David, when he feigned madness before Abimelech, who drove him away and he departed. How many of us have that in our Bibles? A few of us, so I'm not talking out of my hat. So um, that, that, that is the subtitle. So that sort of gives you some context about the, the, back, the background of this psalm. Now, the story is told in, in 1 Samuel 21, if you want to turn there, you can, where it gives us a few more details about what's going on in the background of this psalm. Now, uh, in, 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 in 1 Samuel 21, 
uh, you'll see that the king's name is Achish, whereas here it says Abimelech. And what's the reason for that? Perhaps it's because Abimelech is a title that was used for Philistine kings. In the same way that uh, the Egyptians had pharaohs, the Romans had Caesars, uh, the Philistines had Abimelechs. And so uh, Achish is the king, he's the Abimelech of, Philistine, of, of Philistia, or the land of the Philistines. And, um, and David, in his way, in, in his um, bid to get away from Saul, now finds himself in Gath, which is one of the five major Philistine city-states. And if you know your Bible, you will know that Goliath comes from Gath. And so David, having just killed the hero of the Philistines, now finds himself in the city of the hero he has killed. Not a good place to be. Let me read to you the incident, 1 Samuel 21, verse 10 to 15. Then David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of this one as they danced, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? Verse 12, And David took these words to heart and greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. So he disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely in their hands and scribbled on the doors of the gate and let his saliva run down into his beard. He lost it or pretended to lose it. And then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man behaving as a madman. Why do you bring him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this one to act the madman in my presence? Shall this one come into my house? And so David escapes. I don't want us to get caught in the details of the narrative and, you know, was it right for David to pretend and was it sinful and all of that? And there is a time and place to discuss that. But what I want us to appreciate is David's state of mind as he is in Gath and perhaps looking back on that time in Gath as he writes the psalm. We don't know if he wrote the psalm while he was in Gath or after he escaped and looking back, he's just recounting God's faithfulness in his life. But the point is that he's in a really dark, dark place. His life is in threat. There's, it's a sort of code red situation. He's, he's the hero of Israel. He's found favor with the people of Israel, but he's fallen out of favor with the king of Israel. The king wants to kill him. He knows that the king wants to kill him. The king knows that he knows, but... Hey, what are you going to do? He's the king. And so he's running away. He's been promised that he would be the king of Israel. But now he's out of the frying pan into the fire. And he's in enemy territory. Just imagine you, you kill uh, Osama bin Laden. I mean, if he was alive. And, and you kill him. And then you find yourself in Osama bin Laden's village. Put yourself in David's shoes. You've just killed the, their hero. You've just killed their weapon of mass destruction. And now you find yourself in that hero's hometown. You're at their mercy. They know where you are. They know where you live. They're out to get you. They're not going to let you go. And so there's a massive 
sense of endangerment, there's a massive threat that David is under. There's pressure on his life. I don't know how many of us have been in a situation where we've had to fear for our lives. And this is, this is the backdrop. This is where David is coming from when he writes this psalm. And hopefully that backdrop makes the psalm more meaningful. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and delivered him out of all his troubles. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. David's writing from a tremendously personal experience over here, and I'd like us to appreciate some of what he was going through so that we can understand the pursuit of godly boasting. What we're looking at is therefore not just a song, it's the byproduct of tribulation. And we can understand some of that. We all have, have heard and sung of songs that have been written in a time of great personal tragedy. It is well with my soul. The songwriter loses his family in a, in a, in a, in a boat incident. They capsize, they drown. He gets married again. That family perishes too. He writes, it is well with my soul. Another writer, he's about to get married and the day before he is, uh, uh, before the wedding, his wife, his fiance dies. Uh, he's, a few years later, he, he, he finds someone else and he manages to fall in love again and she dies again just a few weeks before their wedding and out of that comes what a friend we have in Jesus. Joseph Scriven being the writer. More recently, we have the song, Blessed Be Your Name written in response to 9-11. So we understand songs of praise and worship that come out of a sense of great trial and tragedy. We are no strangers to this idea, and therefore this psalm should not be strange to us in terms of its construct. And it's no ordinary song because if you notice, there's 22 verses in the psalm which gives you an indication as to its specialty. The Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters in the alphabet. And so each verse in this psalm has been carefully constructed so that the first word of every verse starts with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So it's like the first verse starts with A, and the second verse starts with B, and the third all the way in, in, in Hebrew, of course. And so we call that an acrostic. And so there's, David is not just writing out of personal experience. He's crafting worship material to praise God. And I, I see sort of four sections, four movements in the psalm. And I'm, I'm not trying to say that this, is the, this was what it was in David's mind when he wrote it. It's, it's, I think we can infer this just from the way the psalm is written. And the first part is the declaration where David is stating his intention to honor God. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Hopefully, the souls that have been stating their rejoicing in the Lord this morning have caused the humble to hear and be glad. 
Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. The second part is an explanation of that declaration. David, why should we magnify the Lord together with you? Answer, I sought the Lord and he heard me. And he delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around all those who fear him. That's the reason to join together and magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. The second part is grounded in personal experience and the third part is also grounded in personal experience. But this time David's saying, hey, I want you to share in my personal experience. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For to those who fear there is no want. The young lions, they lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing, etc., etc. And so having a very profound and deep personal experience of God, David now wants his readers and others to share in that experience and saying, hey, you need to do this. You need to know this. And so we move from a declaration of intent to, uh, to personal experience to uh, a desire for others to share that experience. And then we come to the fourth section, which is about the nature and character of God. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. It's almost as if we are moving from something that is personal to something that is objective. Something that is subjective experience to something that is objective reality. David is just moving from this is, this is what I, who I know God to be to now this is who God is. And that's not to say that he's somehow discounting his personal experience. He's just saying that his personal experience is rooted and grounded in the reality of who God is. Now, again, I want to say that this is not the only way that you can cut up the psalm. Uh, Spurgeon, for example, just saw two sections in, in the psalm. Verse 1 to verse 10, he saw this as being um, a, 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 just, a, just praise, a hymn. And then from, the, uh, from verse 11 to the, to the end, he just saw that as being a, a sermon. So you might have a different way of cutting up the psalm, and that's fine. Uh, I just feel that we want to look at these four sections in the psalm. We're not going to go very deep. We just look at broadly an overview of each of these sections to understand what the pursuit, how we can practice really the pursuit of godly boasting. And so we're going to look at four B's of, of godly boasting, um, and hopefully that it will help you to, to, to remember how to practice this. So the first B that we're going to look at is the burden of godly boasting. Now that's not to say that the godly boasting is somehow cumbersome or onerous or burdensome. Rather, I'm using the word burden because from the verse itself, there seems to be um, the idea that David is weighed down by the need to give praise to God. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall be continually in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord, and the humble will hear it and rejoice. The word bless comes from the root word, which means to kneel. 
And that sort of makes sense in the context of, uh, of, of receiving a blessing. You kneel before someone who is higher in authority and honor than you, and they confer upon you a blessing. And so the idea of kneeling is very closely related to the word bless. But when we talk about godly boasting, are we saying that God is going to kneel before us? Obviously not. But it just means that we acknowledge His greatness above us, and so we kneel before Him, and we are now just giving Him praise back to Him, telling Him things about Himself. And we are boasting in that. There's a, there's a stirring within the deepest part of our being that says, this is someone you need to worship. This is someone you have to fear and revere. This is, um, this is not the product of, of being in, 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 in a place where there has dim lights and the drone of a guitar and repetitive words and trying to get you into a trance-like state. No, this is a, a solemn moment. It is a solemn moment between you and your Creator. And your soul is just urging you and compelling you and coercing you from within, saying, you need to praise. You need to glorify. You need to bless the Lord. You need to count Him as being so worthy. You need to just let yourself go in just lavishing words of praise before Him. You need to bring Him tribute that is in alignment with His worth. You need to come bearing gifts of, of just lifting Him high and putting Him on that pedestal. It's that moment almost that you come with your alabaster jar and you break it at the feet of the Lord and you just wipe His feet with your tears and perfume and then dry it off with your hair. You recognize that anything that you bring is going to be insufficient but you bring your best. And you offer it as a sacrifice. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually, all the time, be in my heart, in my mind, in my mouth. It is audible praise. This is what we did this morning. It's audible. We stand up and we say, I just thank the Lord for this and this and this and this. I feel the need to make this statement because He has impressed on me the need to make this statement. The Spirit has squeezed praise out of me. What sort of praise is this? Lavish praise, extravagant praise, excessive praise. A mighty fortress is our God. 
Think about that. A mighty fortress. Not just, this is not just any ordinary God. A mighty fortress is our God. Love lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me. And I just love the verse from that song. Could we with ink the ocean fill? Or were the skies of parchment made? If every stalk on earth were a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, even if it were stretched from sky to sky. This is not praise that lifts me up. This is, this is praise that spares no expense because it recognizes I can't be ordinary. God is not judging me because I'm poor in, in financial status. But I can bring Him praise that is effusive, extravagant, lavish, luxurious. It costs me nothing, but it means everything. I choose my ideas. I choose my words with specificity and care because I want to honor the Lord in a special way, a mighty fortress. I want others to see this God. This is what He means to me, but I want to express and say, this is who He is. He is a God that lifts you up. He is a God who, who in the storm, He calms the storm. Do you know this God? You better know this God. This is praise that speaks of God in terms of great dignity. Because he is a God of a high reputation. And guess what happens when we do that? The humble hear and rejoice. Those who are weak in spirit, those who are a bit timid, those who are not given to outspokenness, they hear. They hear you boasting not in yourself but in their God. And they rejoice. They rejoice because they say, yeah, that's my God. That's the one I worship. Oh yes, now it makes sense. Magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. And why, should, why should we do that? Why should this burden of godly boasting result in corporate praise? And so we come to our second B, the background for godly boasting. I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. So this is David's personal experience. And he's saying, hey, this is not just me. They look to Him, other people. 
They looked to him and were not ashamed. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of, out of his troubles. And the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. I sought the Lord. He answered me. They looked to him and were radiant. And so a couple of points need to be noted here. First, the, the tenses of these sentences tell us that uh, this is the central part of the psalm. If you miss anything else, miss anything else, but pay attention to this part. This is the important, this is the core, this is the kernel, this is the, the crux of this psalm. And second, the, the tense of the phrase, I sought and they looked, it just implies the completed action and, and it says that what follows is, is the result, is the natural consequence. I sought the Lord and He heard me. What happens is cause and effect. His hearing is caused by my seeking. Their radiance is the cause of their looking. And what's the central message of the psalm? God responds to His people. You want a reason for boasting in God. Here it is. God responds to you. The creator of the universe responds to creatures of the dust. Can you think about that? The eternal, omniscient, omnipotent God responds to finite creatures of the dust. You can almost hear the incredulity in David's voice. You know, he's like, Yo, I sought the Lord and he answered. Can you believe that? I prayed and he answered. Does this mean that God always answers in, in the affirmative, that God always answers the way we want him to answer? No. Sometimes no is an answer. Paul says three times, I prayed to the Lord and begged him, take this thorn out of my flesh. But the Lord says, no, my power is made sufficient in, in your weakness. Is that grounds for boasting? Amen it is. I sought the Lord and he answered me. Here I am in the court of a king who is seeking to kill me. Here I am with my life in duress and under threat. I am in dire straits. I sought the Lord and He answered. Not, not, not just that. He didn't just deliver me. He didn't just deliver me for the situation. He delivered me from all my fears. My fear of what's, what's Akish going to do to me. My fear of what's going to happen to my crown. My fear of this future is uncertain what's going to happen to me. My fear of, hey, you know, am I going to escape with my life or not? It's not just the situation. God has delivered him from his fear. Be anxious about nothing. But in prayer and supplication, present your request before God. 
And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Are you in a dark place today? Do you find yourself in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death? Are there trials and pressures that are squeezing the hope from you? Look to the Lord. I lift up my eyes onto the hills. The hills are where all the the idols are. I lift up my eyes to the hills from whence cometh my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces will never be ashamed. It's not just that they looked at that time and for that part for that time they were not ashamed. They will never be one look one look, one cry for mercy, one cry for deliverance, one cry to the true God for salvation, for, for deliverance, and you will never, ever, ever be ashamed. They looked unto him and were radiant. Why? Because you look to the Lord and, and some of his glory will rub off onto you. They looked unto him and were radiant. The joy of the Lord is somehow manifest. You've got an aura around you. There's something about you that that testifies that you are different. The saint in the midst of, of, of trials who is looking to the Lord is the saint who reflects the radiance of the Lord. Because why? Because that's not how people react in terms in times of trial. That's not how the world reacts. But you in the midst of your trial reflect the radiance of the Lord and your face will never be ashamed. That idea of of being ashamed um, is the idea of being disgraced and embarrassed in public view. And you you know the feeling sometimes you say something or or you do something in public and you're like, oh man, I just wish the ground would swallow me up. And that's the idea over here. It's wanting to recede from, from public view. You, you don't want to be there anymore because you're so embarrassed. And what David is saying is if you look to the Lord, you will never know that feeling. You will never in public want the ground to swallow you up because you know that the Lord and Creator is on your side. What a great feeling to know that your face will never be ashamed. No matter what the world says, no matter what society says, no matter what mocking or taunting or scoffing, you will never be ashamed. If you look to the Lord in your suffering, you will never be ashamed. What's more, your soul will boast in the Lord. And that's, that's, the, that's the point that we can so easily miss here. I I sought the Lord and He he heard me and He delivered me. But sometimes we can forget and leave it at that. Hey, there were were ten of you guys were healed, right? Where's the other nine? Oh, 
we just thought that, that was fine. We didn't feel the need to come and give praise and glorify. But when we pray and the Lord listens and hears and answers, that is grounds for godly boasting. Suffering is the seedbed for godly boasting. So if, if, if you're going through a trial or an affliction or, or, or dark days and every, every threat is an opportunity to boast in the Lord. Every trial is an opportunity to boast in the Lord. John Piper has a, has a book. I think it's called Don't Waste Your Cancer. And he develops the idea that we should not waste our suffering, but use it as an opportunity to just glorify God, revel in His sovereignty, revel in the understanding that He has you where He wants you to be. And if He has brought you to the place where you are, He will bring you through. Suffering is the background for godly boasting. Prayer is the background for godly boasting. And this is why we have our third B, the beseeching of godly boasting. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Fear the Lord, you His saints. Come, you children, listen to me. When you have experienced the deliverance of the Lord in the midst of trial, you want others to know. You want others to share in that experience. You can see other people suffering. You understand where people are at. And you want, hey, look, hey, this is what he did for me. Look what he can do for you. Taste and see. Will you just taste and see? Whatever's stopping you from putting that spoon of God in your mouth, you know, let go of that. Taste and see that the Lord is good. There's an urgency in, in, that accompanies godly boasting. And, and we, we pray to the Lord and we bless the Lord and our boast is in the Lord. But what about our, our relationship with other people? We want them to understand why, where we're coming from. We want them to have what we've got. Because we can see their situation, we can see their problem, and we know that the Lord is there to help. And so we see a natural progression in the psalm from personal experience. David almost begs others to come and share in that same experience. He wants others to see that God is not just a deliverer in times of trouble. He is a provider in times of need. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for to those who fear him there is no want. You know, I was fearful when I was in Achish's court. I was fearful for my life. I was fearing what men could do to me. But here he says, fear the Lord. Don't fear man. Don't fear what man can do to you. Fear the Lord. Why? For to those who fear Him, there is no want. You know the young lions, they're the ones who are nimble and fast 
and can just get on the ball and catch the prey, but they, they, they suffer hunger. They don't always get the zebra or the gazelle or whatever it is that they're chasing. But they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Don't worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. Matthew 6, 31 to 33. Don't, don't just come to God to get things. Come to God to get God. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Why? Because when I have the God of creator, I have everything that I need. What more could I want if I have God? What more could I possibly need if I have the one who is all-sufficient, all-powerful? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He predestined us to adoption as sons. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, Ephesians 1. And we know from 1 Peter that inheritance is unfading, undefilable, kept in heaven for us. When we have God, we have everything we need. And so, and so when we see people running out of the things of the world, and when we see people just doing the wrong thing and just messing up, we can't help but implore them and say, hey, oh, listen to me. Godly boasting is not content to boast alone. It begs and beseeches others to join in. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Are you someone who wants to live a long life? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil. Do good. Seek peace. Pursue it. There's the formula if you're looking for one. There's the boxes to take. Godly boasting begs others to stop their lives of sin and pursue holiness. Why? Because of the nature of God Himself. And so we come to the last B, which is the basis of godly boasting. After expressing His desire to boast in God out of a personal experience of God's deliverance, and after begging others to know this God, David now moves to the nature and character of God Himself. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and the ears and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. God is not distant, God is not aloof. He is personal, He is intimate. God is not indifferent and uncaring, but He is concerned and compassionate and merciful. 
God is not blind to wickedness and evil. He will destroy it. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. One can almost hear Jesus' sermon on the mount, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. You know, the brokenheartedness, I mean, this is not just someone who's in love and just been, you know, let down. Or It's someone who has come to the recognition that they are spiritually bankrupt and it breaks their heart to know that they have nothing to offer God. They can see the love of God on the cross and they just got empty hands. And it breaks their heart to know that they've really got nothing to bring. What are you going to bring? How are you going to respond? What, what fitting thing are you going to bring to this God who is so deserving of the highest honor and tribute? What, you've got nothing. I've got nothing. But I can boast. I can boast in the greatness of this God. I can tell others about this God. I can beg them to see the, this God. Taste and see. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. These last four verses might seem like an, like an overstatement or uh, an exaggeration. You're talking it up, David. Come on. Come on. Are you saying that the Lord delivers all His people from all their afflictions all the time? Really? I mean, are you saying that there is no Christian on the face of this earth who is suffering? Are you saying that, uh, you know... The, 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 the nation of Israel went into exile for what? Why do we have the Jewish Holocaust? Why is there suffering? And those are good questions. They're valid questions. And the only way to answer them, I believe, is to look at the cross. The only person who was ever sinless and innocent is, is subjected to the indignity and brutality of death by crucifixion. Why? Why is he suffering? Answer, so that he might reconcile the world to God through his own sacrifice. But what does that have anything to do with what we've been talking about? Well, the answer is that suffering is one of God's many instruments to achieve His purposes. He's able to work all things, including suffering, for good 
of those who love his son. You know, the, these, these questions come to our mind only when we see suffering from, from an earthly perspective. But when we see it from God's perspective, we understand that these are just temporal. From an eternal perspective, these are just light and momentary, as Paul calls them. And they are working for us an eternal weight of glory. God's Son humbled Himself to the point of death on a cross and God raised Him up in the highest place and gave Him a name that is above every other name and every knee will bow to that name. Is that deliverance from death or what? Many are the afflictions of the righteous but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Is that an exaggeration? No, I, I think that's an understatement actually. Why? Because eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10. Godly boasting is anchored in the eternal nature and character of God. We recognize that though we may suffer, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, His kingdom is forever. The Lord redeems the souls of His servants and none of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. Have you taken refuge in the Lord? Refuge from what? Refuge from His wrath. You're not taking refuge in the Lord because something else is coming. Because there's a zombie apocalypse. Because there's a, there's a meteor hurtling towards the earth to consume all of us. You're not taking refuge in the Lord because the Illuminati are somehow taking over the system. You're taking refuge in the Lord because if you don't, you will be consumed by His wrath. None of those... None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. None of those. None of those. Has the Lord rescued you? Has He redeemed you? Has He delivered you from the kingdom of death and darkness into the kingdom of His eternal Son? If yes, then... Bless the Lord at all times. Let His praise continually be in your mouth. Let your soul make its boast in the Lord. And join with other people. And say, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name together. Shall we pray?
Our gracious God and loving Father, we, we come before you recognizing that you are indeed a great and awesome and mighty and wonderful God. A God who is not cold and distant, but a God who is near and caring and loving and compassionate. And as we have read today, His mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Summer and winter and springtime and harvest, great is your faithfulness. Sun, moon, and stars join together in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. Father God, our, our words are so inadequate, rich and exalting though they may be, they are still so, they fall short of fully describing our praise. And so we pray, Lord, that in, in this week to come that we would find ways to express the gratitude of our heart at what you have done for us. Lord, that truly we would make our boast in you. That we would not boast in the things of the world or the things that we have, but in Christ and in Christ alone, because when we have him, we have everything. Father God, may that give us peace, may that give us joy, may that give us comfort in the midst of our struggles and trials and tribulations and afflictions. We just pray, Lord, that we would come before you and, and have the joy and opportunity of saying, this poor man cried and the Lord answered and delivered from all my fears. We pray, Lord, that we would be a people who are fearless in the world because we fear and revere the living God. We ask this in the name of your Son. Amen.